Good morning, church family. Thank you so much for joining us to worship today. If you're joining us for the first time, we are Bradfield and Ruffham Baptist Church. People call us BRBC. We're a church that loves Jesus together, and we want to help other people to do the same. If we haven't met before, my name's Emily, and I'm a member at BRBC, and I'm so glad to welcome you to worship this morning. Well, today we're continuing on our sermon series through the book of Esther, so it's time for our Bible reading. If you have a Bible with you, then grab it and turn to Esther chapter 7, and we'll be reading the whole chapter today. If you don't have a Bible handy, that's fine. The passage will appear on the screen next to me as well. So Esther chapter 7, starting in verse 1. So the king and Haman went into feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent, for our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he, and where is he, who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. And the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house fifty cubits high. And the king said, Hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Peter Moore, the pastor's here at BRBC. It's good to be back with you. And today we are continuing on in Esther 7. Now, for the past six weeks, we have sort of weaved our way through all the twists and the plots and the reversals in this grand story of Esther. And it's a showdown, really, between God's queen and people and the evil enemy Haman the Agagite, a descendant of that ancient, ancient savage king Agag. And the dice we've seen have been rolled, a genocide has been issued, a queen has been named, and a trap has been set, and a battle has begun. It will be either life or death for God's people. And today we see the crescendo of the plots. Now, it can sound a lot, or at least a bit, like a blockbuster film, can't it? I mean, most of us can appreciate the intricate plot lines and the character development, but if we're honest, it can be kind of hard to relate to a Persian queen sub subverting evil plots and corruptions within the highest echelons of a world empire. I mean, most of us wouldn't even use the imagery of a battle to describe our lives. And yet... 
within the Bible, one of the most common ways of describing our lives is of a battle. We learn that there's an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion. The Bible speaks about this enemy in three ways, as sin, evil, and death. Sin, evil, and death. I think many of us probably assume that on the stage of life, there are two main characters, God and humanity. But the Bible shows us that there's a third character. There's an enemy. There's a serpent in the garden. Now, for the vast majority of Christian history, this character has been named and exposed. However, roughly in the past 50 to 100 years, both as a culture and as a Christian culture, we've forgotten this third character. Uh, Andrew Del Banco, who is an atheist professor and sociologist, he has written extensively on this in his book, The Death of Satan. And he writes this. He says, we once believed in God and Satan. We once were obsessed with sin and pictured our own history as a struggle with evil. Today, however, while the repertoire of evil seems to have never been more rich as we daily encounter and even relish images of unimaginable horror, our grasp on the reality of evil seems weak and uncertain, our responses to it flustered and sometimes indifferent. Now, some of you might be thinking, great, you know, we, we've shed off those old layers of superstition However, Delbanco, as an atheist, laments this. He says, Our culture is now in crisis because evil remains an inescapable experience for all of us, and yet we've lost our symbolic language for describing it. However, as we read the Bible, we are given the language for describing this reality of sin, evil, and death. The world really is broken. And it's not just by accident that it's broken. It'd be a mistake to just think of Christianity as just a teaching us to look on the sunny side of life and be good, polite, moral people. Rather, the Bible forces us to look at the insidious and overt forces of sin, evil, and death. Not just a little red man with a pitchfork in some far-off imaginary world, but the real active agency of an enemy in our world the presence of the darkness and sin in our world and in our lives. You could say the world is a contested territory and our hearts and lives are contested territory as well. The book of Romans says that humanity is under the power of sin. It's enslaved, preyed upon by an enemy, and we are cursed with decay. So today, as we see this showdown between evil Haman and Queen Esther, we're given a picture of a battle on the world stage of Persia. How can evil plans be turned on their heads? Can evil sin death ever be defeated? And is there hope for God's people? For us, when we face the darkness, when we see the horrors of the world, and when we feel the brokenness in our own lives. So that's where we're going this morning. But as we come to chapter 7, I just want to give us a recap and bring us all up to speed on this story. Many of us know that Queen Esther is just a Jewish girl who's recently been made Queen of Persia after a long beauty pageant. However, her very close uncle Mordecai has agitated a very twisted man named Haman by refusing to bow down to him. And with this one small act, 
Haman, who's the king's right-hand man, decides to unleash his rage. But not only on just Mordecai, but also on Mordecai's people, the Jewish people, God's people. So with cunning deceitfulness, he convinces the king to give him power to incite a genocide against all the Jewish people. In one year's time, men, women, children, they will all be killed. But Queen Esther takes things into her own hand, as we saw. She holds a banquet for the king and for Haman, and she requests a second banquet where she will reveal her deepest desire and request to the king. Now, in between these two banquets, the first banquet and the second banquet, we saw last week the king decides to actually honor Mordecai because of his unrecognized loyalty. And in this very funny, almost comical reversal, Haman was forced to parade Mordecai around Susa. And this just makes Haman's blood boil. He can't wait a year to have Mordecai killed. And so he sets up this giant 75 foot tall spike in his backyard that he plans to skewer Mordecai on the very next day. However, he still has a banquet to attend that evening. And that is where we pick up the story tonight, or this morning, right at the second banquet. So would you read verses one and two with me? So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther, what is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. The king who adores and favors Esther, asks this generous question, which is the exact same question he asked at the first banquet in chapter 5. What would you like, Esther? Dream big, Esther, even up to half of my kingdom. Try me, I'm feeling generous. Riches, jewelry, another palace. What would you like, Esther? Now, Esther has carefully planned for this moment keeping both the king and Haman in suspense. She has the most powerful man in the world offering her a blank check while her enemy is sitting across the dining room table from her. And he just so happens to be the king's most trusted second in command. What is she going to do? What will she reveal in her hand? Now, before we see what she reveals, a few things to keep in mind that help us see what's going on. And it's really about what the king doesn't know at this point. So what doesn't the king know? First, the king doesn't know his queen is Jewish. If you remember, Mordecai told Esther to conceal her identity before becoming a queen. Now, most likely that was because a generic Persian woman was attractive to fulfill the role of a Persian queen. But the queen, the king at this point does not know that Esther is Jewish. Secondly, the king doesn't know that an edict has been written against the Jewish people. In chapter 3, we saw Haman was really vague about his request that a certain people are being disobedient scattered across the empire. For all the king knows, it could be any troublesome people group. Third, the king doesn't know that Haman is Esther's enemy nor that Haman uses his signet ring to issue an edict far more gruesome than the king ever had in mind, as we'll see. And last thing, that, last thing is that Haman himself has no idea that Esther is Jewish or what her request will be. 
So as we come to this, this is the pinch point in the story, really. At this point in the story, the drums are picking up tempo, the drama is rising, the strings are swelling. What will Esther reveal? Well, let's read verses 3 and 4 as we see Esther spring the trap. In verse 3, Then Queen Esther answered, If I found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleased the king, let my life be granted me for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been me sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been silent. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Esther's answer here is not a rage-filled flurry of accusations, but it's logical, and it's humble, and it's respectful. She says, well, king, if I found favor in your sight, if you really do want to honor me as your queen by giving me a wish and a request, well, I don't want to bother you too much, but my wish is for the safety of my own life, and my request is for my people's life. King, would you be so kind as to give me safety and security. Can you hear the gentle and respectful way she's asking? She's being clever and she's being cunning here. Because what king wouldn't want to save his queen's life? And she continues, she says, for we've been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. Now we've heard those three words before. Those are the exact three words taken from Haman's evil genocidal edict. You can imagine Haman at this point, his heart suddenly begins to drop. Maybe he drops his food from his hands. What is going on? And at the end of verse 4, Esther does something absolutely brilliant. She says, if we'd been merely sold as slaves, I would have been silent. I wouldn't even brought it up to you to worry you about such a small thing as enslaving my whole people group. Do you see that? She says, if we were enslaved, that's not a problem at all. It's just King would have been given a death sentence. Now, this is brilliant, not only because Esther's framing her request in such a humble and respectful way, but because she's simultaneously uncover, uncovering Haman's trickery and letting the king off the hook for any responsibility. Now, as you see this, you may have thought, I don't know why she brings up this whole enslavement hypothetical. If we've been slave, it's not a big deal. Why is she even talking about that? Well, I think the author is trying to show us something, and it's this. In the, in the original Hebrew, the word for enslave and the word for destroy are homophones, which mean they sound identical, but they have different meanings. Now, we have homophones in English. Think of the word male. Now, what comes to your head when I say male? Some of you may have thought about an envelope that comes to your letterbox. Others of you may have thought of the male gender of a man, or think of the word tail. Some of you might think of a children's storybook. Others of you may have thought of a fluffy thing that comes out in animals behind. This is a, hom a homophone, things that sound identical but have different meanings. Now in Hebrew, enslave and destroy sound identical, but obviously they have very different meanings. Now to understand what's going on, we need to look at chapter three, when this edict was given. And in chapter 3, verse 9, when Haman plots against Mordecai and the Jewish people, he goes to the king and offers all these vague reasons. He says, you know, there's this unnamed people who are being difficult, and if we destroy them, we'll make some money. Or did he mean enslave them? 
It's hard to tell. Did the king, thinking he was allowing Haman to issue a genocide, or simply force a troublesome, unnamed people group into slavery? We don't know. But if you go further down chapter 3, verse 13, when Haman then goes away from the king to write the edict, he makes it crystal clear what meaning he's using to destroy, kill, and annihilate. So let's reverse back to where we are at the second banquet in chapter 7. When Esther says to the king, if we'd just been enslaved, I wouldn't have even bothered you with this. She's letting the king off the hook. She's simultaneously cleaning the king's hands of any dirty work while condemning the evil architect of this plot. You, you didn't know, king. And what you did know, if you did say that, I'm totally fine with us being enslaved. But someone has tricked you and is after my life. Now, at this point, this is all coming as a revelation to Haman, who we haven't heard a word from. In reality, he had no intention of actually killing the queen. He's just out to take his fury on Mordecai. And Esther has sprung the trap. And we hear the king's response in verses 5 and 6, and it reads like a staccato. Here is the crescendo. Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe and an enemy, this wicked Haman. Haman is terrified before the king and the queen. Esther is no longer referred to as Esther, but as the queen, the royal counterpart to the king, as if to say the enemy lines have been redrawn. It is the king and the queen against Haman. And the king is enraged and the scene moves even more quickly in verses 7 and 8. It says, And the king arose in his wrath from his wine drinking and went into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life of Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. As Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And the word left the mouth of the king, and they covered Haman's face. We see here the king's wrath plumes as he goes into the palace garden, most likely to find the palace guards. And as he does, Haman, who's in a state of terror and shock, falls at Esther's couch, begging for mercy. He had no idea Esther was Jewish, but it seems his fate has already been sealed. And here we have another reversal. I mean, think back. What started all of this mess? It was when Mordecai, a Jew, refused to bow to Haman. But now here's Haman groveling and falling to the ground in front of a Jewish woman begging for his life. And as he falls down on Esther's couch, the king bursts back in to see what looks like either a sexual advance or some assault on his queen. And this, he says, this evil man has no boundaries. He's deceived me and he even assaults my own wife in my own home. And suddenly, Haman's face is covered, a symbol of shame, as presumably he is tied up and held back. There will not be one more word that leaves Haman's lips. And then comes the decadently satisfying poetic justice in verses 9 and 10. In verse 9, then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai, 
then the wrath of the king abated. It's almost comical, isn't it? Harbona, one of the eunuchs, makes this sort of off, off the cuff, astute observation. He says, Ah, king, do you, do you remember that guy we just honored yesterday on your horse because he uncovered an assassination plot against you? Well, Haman, who have just discovered has an assassination plot against your queen and her people, was preparing for Mordecai to be executed on this 75-foot-tall pole in his backyard. Can you taste the irony? Harbona, it's as if he hands the king the ball for a slam dunk, or he hands him a chessboard already in checkmate. And so the king says, hang him on that. And that is the end of the evil Haman. And so in verse 10, the reason they hanged Haman on the gallows, which he had prepared for Mordecai. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for gallows is just the Hebrew word eitz, which is the word for tree. Hang him on the tree. The ESV translated as gallows, which we might think of as a sort of a medieval noose. However, in the Syrian Empire, it was much more common to take a giant tree to strip it bare and to sharpen the very, very top and skewer the one being executed so everyone from miles away could see. So in your Bibles, you might see a superscript to the word gallows, giving the other translation of tree, which is spike, which I think is probably the more historically accurate way that Haman would have ended. It's a gruesome death either way, but however Haman was actually executed, what we're meant to take away is this. They hung him on the tree that he had prepared for Mordecai. They hung him on the tree that he had prepared for Mordecai. How ironic that the man who is seated high above everyone else is now hanged high above everyone else. Mordecai has gotten the honor that Haman wanted for himself, and Haman has got the gallows that he wanted for Mordecai. Mordecai is vindicated, and Haman is executed. The instrument of death meant for Mordecai is used to destroy the enemy. It's poetic, isn't it? This is the way that often evil collapses in on itself that we see throughout the Bible time and time again. Many times in the Psalms, King David talks about his enemies that he's running from and the fact that his enemies dig pits with spikes in them for him to fall into. And yet in Psalm 57 and many other Psalms, he writes this, They have set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they themselves have fallen into it. The enemy's plot caves in on itself. The enemy's devices end up being his own demise. We see it throughout history. We even see it in children's movies. Think about the movie Aladdin, right? We see this powerful, this power-hungry Jafar become the most powerful genie in the universe, only to find out that his freedom has been stripped from him and he's contained in an itty-bitty little lamp. Or think about the Lion King. We see Scar fall into a pit where his hyena minions turn on him as he meets his end. In Esther, we see that evil is defeated by its own devices. And perhaps the greatest parallel of a vindicated man and an enemy defeated by hanging on a tree is at the cross where Jesus hung on a tree and the enemy's instruments of death were turned in on themselves. Brian Gregory, theologian, puts it like this. He says, at Calvary, it looked as if the architect of evil himself had orchestrated the execution of God's own son. Much as Haman had been the architect of Mordecai's execution, 
By all appearances, evil won the battle. Yet what appeared to be a rousing victory on the part of Satan and the forces of evil ended up being the petard on which he was hoisted. On the cross, Jesus assumed our sin, took the blows of evil, and entered into our death. By doing so, he exhausted the penalty of sin, triumphed over evil, and conquered death. That is, sin was skewered by its own sinfulness, evil was defeated by its own evil designs, and death, in the words of John Owen, was put to death in the death of Christ. In a memorable sermon, the early church fathers, uh, St. Augustine, uh, likened the cross to a mousetrap for the devil, which I love. And he, he writes this in his sermon. The devil was defeated by his own victorious achievement. The devil was exalted when Christ died. And by that very death of Christ was the devil conquered. It is though he took the bait in a mousetrap. He, he delighted at the death as being the commander of death. And what he delighted in was where the trap was set for him. The mousetrap for the devil was the cross of the Lord. The bait he took, I'm sorry, the bait he would be caught by was the death of Jesus. And our Lord Jesus Christ rose again. Where now is that death that hung on the cross? Jesus, Jesus has triumphed over sin, evil, and death. And justice was satisfied at the cross. And it means this, that not one person who cast themselves on the mercy of God will be lost. You have a secure and unshakable hope in the future arms of God, who puts death to death, cleanses us from our sin, and defeats the enemy. There's a victory that has been won. But I'm sure you're thinking, but what about now? What about the pain and the darkness and the suffering and the temptation we face now? Jesus is victorious for us, yes, but look at the world around us. We'll take a look at the way chapter 7 ends. The last sentence, then the wrath of the king abated. Do you remember Esther's request and wish? Her people and her life and her people's life. Her life has been saved, but what about her people's life? Chapter 7 actually ends on a cliffhanger. The enemy has been defeated, but the edict is still in place. The evil plan will still move forward. The king is satisfied with just the evil architect being defeated. We tend to see Esther chapter 7 as the end of the story of Esther. At least it does in the Veggie Tales uh, version of it. And yet there's a whole third of the book left. And it's not just tying up loose ends. Yes, there's a joy at the end of chapter 7, but there's this dark cloud. The evil one has been defeated, but it looks like his evil plot marches forward. Similarly, for us, living after the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have a victory to proclaim. The enemy has been bound, and we wait for the full victory of God to be realized, for Jesus to return and make all things new. But until then, we experience pain and suffering, illness, temptation, and death. With tears in our eyes, with sorrow and grief, we look forward to the day when the future of God becomes our present. We take confidence in this. Haman's death was the first domino to fall. It was the beginning of the end. Jesus' death was the first domino to fall. As Paul writes, he's the first fruits of a new creation. His death and resurrection is the beginning of the end. The first real enemy has fallen and it's just a matter of time for the rest. 
But why doesn't Jesus just come now? <laughs> why not bring in the newness right now? That's a good question. And as we end, I want to point to where the Apostle Peter wrote to a church experiencing suffering and persecution and attacks from the enemy after Jesus had won the victory. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it says, There will be scoffers in the last days, and some will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since our fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the very beginning. Have you ever felt like that? Things are just carrying on. Where is Jesus? Well, Peter gives us a precious answer. In verses 8 and 10 of chapter 3, he says, But do not overlook this fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night, and then the heavens will pass away with, pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it shall be exposed. The Lord is patient because he is saving people from the grip of the enemy. He's not sitting back doing nothing. We are called to persevere and endure as Jesus snatches back more of his sheep from the wolf. And Peter doesn't downplay the coming final battle. He says the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. We are constantly every moment on the knife edge of the day of the Lord. Everything will be exposed and uncovered. And with one roar from the mouth of Jesus, the enemy's plots will be extinguished. So may we find confidence that not one person who casts themselves on the mercy of God will be lost. A victory has been won, and it's just a matter of time until the glory of the Lord fills the earth as the oceans cover the earth. And until then, our lives, your life, it's like a beachhead on the frontier of the usurped dominion of the enemy. And your life, when it lives in the power of Jesus, it is claiming back God's territory, one act of grace and one act of mercy at a time, one utterance of the gospel at a time. In a world caving in on itself, we actually have good news to share. So may we find confidence knowing that we are called to proclaim the victory of God into this present world of darkness. With tears in our eyes, sorrow and grief, we look forward to the day when the future of God becomes our present. Well, it's been really great to be with you again this morning and looking forward to being back with you next week right here at 1030. But as we go, let me just read a few verses for, that the Apostle Paul sent to a church who knew the victory of Jesus, but also the sufferings of this present world. He says this, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also with him not give us, not graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against the God's, God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or the sword? As it is written, 
For your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. May we go in that peace this morning. Go in peace, saints.